0: Can you really judge a book by its cover? Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 21, which is actually the 100th Episode overall of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. 100 episodes. When I started this podcast in 2019, It was because I'd taken a workshop and found out how easy it could be on a limited or no budget, and I do like to talk. You may have noticed. I did purchase some equipment, a professional microphone and a sound dampening system, but I basically turned a corner of my walk-in closet into a mini-production studio I called Unexpected Paths Media. I've learned a lot about editing audio, far more than I ever thought I'd need to know. And I still get pretty excited when I do a cut and replace and it works. It sounds seamless. I'm pretty proud of that. I still listen to other podcasts, though, and I envy how professional they sound with all the music and the sound effects, and then I find out the hosts have hired a production company to accomplish that. Mine is a one-person show, and will have to remain so for now, but 100 episodes is a milestone I didn't think I'd achieve. I initially thought, I'd eh, give it a try, and... I'd get tired of it after a couple of months. But I didn't. And during lockdown in 2020, the podcast helped keep me sane because I felt as if I were talking to people. And that fed my extroversion. And I kept doing it because the number of plays and the number of listeners grew every week. Not like the numbers that fully professional podcasts have, but for an amateur podcaster recording in her clothes closet, almost 5,000 plays in 100 episodes is pretty awesome. So thank you for listening. You don't know how much I appreciate it. And I thought long and hard about how to celebrate this 100th episode I couldn't come up with anything that I could be sure every listener could receive, except my heartfelt and sincere thank you. So, books and their covers. I was the odd type of reader who didn't pay much attention to the book cover, in the sense that a front cover image wouldn't necessarily compel me to buy a book. When I used to go to brick-and-mortar stores, I would walk in and the displays at the front of the store, yes, the front covers would catch my eye. They would draw me to the book, but I never picked up the book and studied the front cover. The first thing I did was flip it over and read the back cover copy and frankly i don't like it when blurbs about the book from other authors are printed on the back cover i want to know what the book's about that's going to tell me if i'm interested in reading it for hardcover books with a paper jacket the book description is usually on the left side flap and continues a bit onto the right side flap, where you also get a short bio and usually a glamour shot of the author. Blurbs on the back of a paper jacket are fine in that case. But it's the back cover copy that compels me to open the book and try a few pages. Then I can decide whether or not to buy That's easy to say now about being a reader, but it took me, the author, a while to put that into practice for myself. For some reason, I thought the book's subject matter would sell it. No need to flash some tawdry picture on the front cover to attract people. This was before I learned about hooks and the fact that certain genres have themed covers. Now think about it. You go to an online or brick-and-mortar bookstore, and you see a handsome man embracing a beautiful woman looking adoringly up at him, and you've got romance, no question. You see a dark and mysterious background, a single house out in the woods in the dark, and a huge title in red color covering most of all of the front cover and you've got a thriller or a mystery you see a silhouette of a man and or a woman either or both of which are holding a gun and you've got an espionage thriller of some sort sometimes you might only see the gun in a related setting or simply bullets. I've seen covers like that, and they are intriguing and eye-catching, but they don't necessarily say spy. They could be a police procedural or even true crime. Regardless of what genre the book is, the front cover has to attract your attention. And it wasn't until I took some workshops on marketing for independent authors, that I realize the whole cover, the front, the spine, the back, are an integrated unit that should attract a reader and hook them like a fish. That's why finding the perfect cover is important. And for me, the cover needs to relate to the content of the book, That is, there can't be a disconnect. You can't simply use a cover because it looks good, but the reader can't connect it to the story as they're reading it. You do have genre mashups, like a romantic thriller, and so you might see as well a mashup of cover types. A couple, obviously, into each other, but they're holding guns or they're against a mysterious, dark background. Indeed, since my two main protagonists in my books are partners in espionage and married to each other, some cover artists I've engaged to create a cover for me have wanted to emphasize the romance aspect. And I get that. The romance genre is the biggest portion of the market, with Uncountable subgenres, and some of the best selling books in the world are romance novels. But that's not what my books are about. For every book of mine, even as I'm writing it, before I've even finished it, I have a picture in my head of what the cover should look like. Since I'm no graphic artist, I have tried hiring someone to design a cover to my specifications, but I've had mixed results with that because even though I can describe in words what I'd like the cover to look like, the artist can't get into my head to see that image. I have found good success with what are called pre made covers. The artist creates something that appeals to him or her, puts it on a site. People go and look at the site, and if they happen to like the cover or they think it relates to one of their books, you can buy it. It's pre-made. However, that does involve hours sometimes of looking at thumbnails of pre-made covers in hopes of finding one that's close to what I see in my head. The site where I found most of my covers for my books also allows some customization for a reasonable additional fee. So if you spot something that's almost there, you can work with the company and the artist to adjust it. And I recently did that for a cover of an upcoming book. It had a man's face, and I particularly liked the man's face and the dark background and the fact that he had this kind of hood on. But the eyes were red, and apparently the artist thought it would be a great horror cover. So I simply asked, before I bought it, if the artist could change the color of the eyes to an icy blue. And, of course, the answer was yes, he could, but I had to buy the cover first, which I did. Now, regarding covers, I know some independently published authors who will spend a lot of money purchasing a cover. But let's put it this way. I'm half Scots. I tend to be frugal with my money. Well, unless it's something I really, really want. When I realized I didn't have the talent to create my own covers, and I didn't want to pay 700 to to $1,000 or more for a custom cover, I found this company with pre-made covers fit right into my budget. The most I've paid for a cover at this site is $150. And those covers are very professional, eye-catching, and I'd put them up against a cover commissioned by a traditional publisher any day. When I was looking for a cover for the first book of my upcoming series, Meeting the Enemy, I scoured the mystery thriller section of the pre-made cover company. And by the way, for any authors listening, I'll post the link to that site In the episode description. And there it was, a cover that was about a 90% match to the image in my head. And what was that image? The series Meeting the Enemy is about 9-11 and its aftermath. The first book, Terror, begins in New York City on 9-11. As an aviator myself, when I saw the images of planes being deliberately flown into those buildings, I reflected on my own pilot training, which was as the pilot responsible for the lives, or souls as we call them, in your airplane, you do everything you can to avoid an accident. If you have an emergency, You do everything you've been trained to do to assure your passengers walk off that airplane safely. And you must be especially cautious in situations where your neglect or your lack of skill might injure people on the ground or in buildings. So I couldn't grasp how a trained pilot sitting in a cockpit, could let this happen. Of course, these weren't accidents, and the assigned pilots weren't the ones who flew into the buildings. Fanatics did that. Terrorists did that. That's a whole different mindset. But I still kept thinking about how that must have looked from the cockpit. It was the stuff of my nightmares for quite a while. And when I saw this pre-made cover that reminded me of that nightmare, I didn't hesitate. I bought it right away. Now, it's not graphic or grotesque or disrespectful in any way, at least to me. But if it upsets someone, and it probably will, I am sorry. But you know me. I don't sugarcoat history. On June the 4th, I'll be revealing that cover on Facebook and Instagram. So stay tuned. Commercial time now. You have about a month left to pre-order book one of Meeting the Enemy, the one with that cover. The title of book one is Terror, so the cover ain't going to have daisies and hearts on it. Sorry. I don't think any book I will ever write could possibly have daisies or hearts on it, but you never know. The advantage of... A pre-order is that on launch day at midnight, the book shows up in your Kindle library, meaning if you have trouble falling asleep, you've got something to read and hopefully not keep you awake all night. Though someone did once complain to me that I had kept her up all night reading one of my books. I, quite frankly, don't see the problem with that, but she did. I'll include the link for the pre-order in the description of this episode, but you can also go to Amazon.com and search Terror P.A. Duncan, and that should get you right to the pre-order page. And now you can also have an updated version of the reader magnet for Book 1, Terror. I did some editing, did some rearranging, and created a new cover, one which I happen to do myself, but which incorporates the cover of book one, Terror. Not so you'd notice it that much, though. I don't want people to get confused. You won't get confused. So the reader magnet is now titled Prologue to Terror, and it's the only one of my books with a pun for the title. You see, the scenes in Prologue to Terror were once the opening chapters, the prologue, if you will, of the novel Terror. But storytelling required that the novel about 9-11 needed to start on 9-11. So I removed those scenes from the beginning and created a reader magnet so prologue to terror is really the prologue to the book terror it's a pun i'm probably the only one laughing i get that so prologue to terror is available now for your kindle and as a very slim paperback Again, I'll put the link in the episode description, or you can go to Amazon and search Prologue to Terror P.A. Duncan. And commercial over. All right, let's have a reading now from Book One, Terror. And I'll set this up. My Fisher, in her cover as CIA Chief of Staff Catherine Burke, has had a rather contentious day at a White House briefing. She's longing for home, for a bit of whiskey, maybe, even though she knows there'll be people there at the house she doesn't really want to interact with. And in this chapter, Demetra Bills and Dana Arbus are two characters based on public figures. And it's from them that Mai receives a rather interesting invitation. Meeting the Enemy, Book One, Terror, Chapter 38 Booker and Fisher Residence, Mount Vernon, Virginia. Peter Burke's rental car was still on the apron by the garage. The whole White House briefing thing had kept it from her mind. But now she couldn't ignore it. The house she and Alexei had recently joked was such a huge empty nest seemed overcrowded. At least her headache had eased to a dull pounding behind her eyes. She pulled into the garage, lowered the door, and shut off the car. She closed her eyes, let her head lay back on the headrest, and savored the silence and the absence of people, all the while fighting the urge to run away from it. Alexei had. Why couldn't she? Obligations, for one thing. Spying on the White House and the CIA for Nelson. She still had an unfulfilled obligation beyond that. Because of the delay in returning to full aviation operational capability, and this new convoluted CIA mission, she hadn't had time to check with Roshin. Damn. With Moira to see if they had arrangements to get Roshin home. Mai's private mobile rang, and when she checked the caller ID, a tingle ran up her spine. It was Moira Pierce O'Shea. Yes, Moira, Mai answered. Is this a bad time? No, it's fine. What is it? If you can get us into the U.S., I have one of our cargo planes that can bring roshan home. Glasnevin said they can accommodate us on the 25th. I can make that work. Here's what you need to do. My outline for her, the process Diane Reed at the FAA had explained to her, is... The cargo plane fitted for any passengers. No, why? Oh, no problem. I'll use the jump seat in the cockpit. You're coming. I said I'd bring her home, and I will. And I'm glad you saw my way for Glesnieden. Well, You are the T-Such, after all. That I am, My thought. And finally, an O'Shea who gets that. Well, let me know if you have any problems with that process, Mai said. I have a contact in the FAA who can help. I will. And you, ma'am, are you all right? What a stupid fucking question, Mai thought. But she said, I'm doing better, thank you, Moira. I'll see you on the 24th. Arrange a hotel room, will you? I'll have the Dublin house ready for you. Smart and efficient. This could work out well. Excellent. Um, thank you, Moira. You're welcome, ma'am. Good evening. Mai hung up and realized it was midnight in Dublin. Another O'Shea overachiever. Mai felt Edwin Terrell's ghost in the car's passenger seat. You remembered the CIA map of the Tora Bora network today, he said. Yes, she had, and she wasn't sure she wanted to discuss that with Tyrell. Were he alive or with his concussion-manifested ghost? Tyrell continued, The one I gave your dearly beloved so you, he, and his commie half-brother could escape the Mujahideen. That tunnel through the mountains was not a memory she wanted in her addled head right now. Too claustrophobic. The one he told you he burned, Terrell persisted. Jesus wept, she thought. If you ignore ghosts, don't they go away? My replied, He said he burned it, so he did. You and I had that argument twenty years ago, baby. You know damn well he gave that map of my network to his risky comrades who turned around and blew it up. That cleanup cost me a lot of time and taxpayer dollars. I have never known the CIA to be the least worried about wasting public funds, she said. And no, he didn't. you suspected it all these years. I barely remember it. Bullshit. You remember today. He said he burned it. So he burned it. Oh, yeah his word to you was always so reliable. My turn to him, ready to meet sarcasm with sarcasm, and saw she was alone in the car. Her daughter-in-law, McCartney Niels Burke, however, stood in the doorway to the short breezeway connecting the garage to the house. The concern on McCartney's face was almost sincere. Almost my took her briefcase from the seat where tyrrell had sat and exited the car were you talking to yourself mccartney asked her my held up the mobile handling a business call she said well we were all concerned when the security monitor showed your car coming up the driveway but you didn't come inside my peered past mccartney no other concerned faces. Business to take care of Mac, that's all. Peter knew enough about his father's and stepmother's profession not to ask questions. The same with Natalia. For McCartney, Mai and Alexei had agreed UN refugee relief was all she needed to know. Mai squeezed past McCartney and went into the family room. A quick glance showed her the Russian contingent as she'd come to call Kolya and Yuri was absent. They tended to hang out in Olga's apartment on the lower level because Olga had vodka or in the mini-gym on the other side of the basement. 18-month-old Sergei Petrovich Bukharin sat on the floor with his much older sister Natalia both of them playing with Duplo blocks. Peter rose from a sofa and came to his wife's side. "'How was uh, work today?' he asked Mai, perhaps a veiled way of asking if she'd heard anything about his father. "'The same as usual,' Mai replied. "'Peter,' McCartney said, "'it's not work she should be worried about.' She's suffered a tremendous loss. McCartney took Mai's free hand in both of hers. That fake moue of concern appeared again, and with the tone generally used on someone in their dotage, she asked, "'How are you feeling today?' "'God, Mac,' Natalia said from her spot on the floor. "'Poppy's not dead. He's missing.' Missing is a bad thing, McCartney snapped. She looked again at Mai, the practiced sincerity back in place after having slipped a bit. Is there any hope? Mai extracted her hand. Sorry to disappoint you. Plenty of hope. Mai's personal mobile had received message after message from Natalia, describing how, after setting foot in the house... McCartney had gone through every room, making notes on the house's contents, especially the art on the walls. What do you... McCartney began. Natalia, Mai said, her attention on the youngest woman present. I'm sorry I missed dinner. Well, we had to eat, McCartney said with an edge of bitchiness. It's important for Sergey to eat on a schedule. Natalia, fix Maya a plate. Mai and Natalia exchanged a look, Natalia rolling her eyes. McCartney had quickly assumed the lady of the manor role and with a bit too much enthusiasm. Don't bother, Nat, Mai said. I still have some work to do in the home office. I'll grab something later. Sergei stood up, holding a conglomeration of Duplo box. He toddled over to Mai and held it up to her. Mai took a knee to be at his level. Did you build this, Serge, she asked him. Uh Uh-huh. He edged up to Mai and tucked himself against her. And what did you make? A car. A car. How absolutely lovely. Mai made car engine noises as she rolled the contraption over Sergei's back and chest. He giggled, a sweet, joyful sound better than anything Mai had heard in a long time. She stood, briefcase left at her feet, and balanced Sergey on a hip. A game of car race on Sergey became a game of flying because he changed his mind and decided his construct was an airplane, a wonderful interlude during which Mai didn't think about presidents in over their heads or missing spouses. She didn't miss the terror on McCartney's face when Mai held Sergei over her head and flew him like an airplane. Uh, that's that's enough playing for now, McCartney said. If he's too keyed up, he won't sleep tonight. With reluctance, Mai surrendered Sergey to Peter, but the child insisted Mai keep the Duplo construction. Mai took it and her briefcase into the office, where she had to uphold the duties of a CIA chief of staff. Once Mai had closed and secured the office door, the utter silence almost drove her back to the chaos. This room, with its incredible view and various amenities, was usually a haven. She and Alexei had spent probably thousands of fruitful hours here, plotting, planning, debating, relaxing, screwing each other silly. The empty chair at his desk mocked her, as did everything in this room, the same as the last time they'd been here together, the day before they'd left for New York City. The whole room seemed ready for him to waltz in with some pithy comment about whichever mission they were working back when they had missions. Now, he was her mission. The mission. Mai stood before his desk and addressed the empty chair. Why didn't you wait? Why couldn't you have been like every other survivor and kept a vigil there till the body came out? Why not give it a decent burial before going off on a revenge kick? The headache flared again, reminding her she'd not kept up with her aspirin intake. And damn talking with an imaginary Terrell, now had her talking to empty chairs. "'Fuck,' she muttered. Though she'd promised herself to take it easy on the whiskey, Mai went to the office's dry bar and poured herself a generous three fingers of Jameson. She headed back to her desk, stopped, and snagged the bottle to bring with her. After sitting, she washed down three extra-strength aspirin with a swallow of whiskey— probably not the best of ideas, and then opened her briefcase. After perhaps 15 minutes, she confirmed why she'd forsworn a desk job. Entirely too many bureaucrats wrote too many words. When her office phone rang, she almost thanked it for the interruption. She reached, drew her hand back. What if it were McCartney calling from another phone in the house You git, Mai said. McCartney didn't know this number. Only a few people did, like... Alexei. No, he thought she was dead. He was gone. Why would he call to what he thought would be an empty house? More likely, it was Nelson wanting a report about her first White House briefing. Fisher, she answered. A pause. I am trying to reach Catherine Burke at this number, said an efficient sounding female voice. Shite, my thought. She found her American accent and replied I'm um I'm Miss Burke's housekeeper. May I ask who's calling? I'm calling on behalf of doctor Demetra Bills, National Security Advisor. She would like to speak with Miss Burke. Now this was an interesting development. Sure, I'll, um, uh, I'll get her to the phone. Thank you. Hold one moment. Innocuous Muzak played for about half a minute. A crisp, no-nonsense voice, my recognized, said, "Miss Burke, I hope I'm not disturbing you. Had Vice President Stodden given Bills the task of chastising Catherine Burke for speaking out of turn? My refilled her glass with whiskey. What if I said you were? My replied. Bill's laugh was soft, almost sultry. Director Brasso warned me you could be a blunt but useful ally. I'm sure he did. Did he give you this number? Yes, he did. Look, Miss Burke, I heard what you were saying today. We are not far off in our opinions on the matter. Well, I suspected you might understand more than anyone else in the room. It is your area of expertise. Indeed. I'd like to continue that discussion privately and off the record. Can you be at my condo by 2100? My checked her watch. 1930. Bills lived at the Watergate, and with rush hour winding down, an hour and a half was doable, but... Did she really want to go? I'm afraid I've made a decent start on cocktail hour, Mai said, and shouldn't drive. Boyd hasn't assigned you a car and driver? The subject hasn't come up. I can have my driver pick you up in 20 minutes. How's that? I believe you enjoy Irish whiskey, correct? Mai swallowed some Jameson and wondered how Bills knew that. But Mai had shared more than a few glasses of whiskey with the previous administration's national security adviser. Bills continued, I have some Macallans, the fine and rare, $38,000 a bottle. Mai detested people who tried to impress her with how much money they had. A bit steep, that, Mai replied on a college president's pension and a government salary. I guess those speaking engagements when your party was out of office were lucrative. Bills laughed again, definitely sexy this time. I like expensive things, Miss Burke. Not to collect, but to savor, as they should be. A a friend gave me the McAllens, and I've been wanting an excuse to open it. I understand it is the most expensive whisky in the world. Not burst that bubble, but that would be the last bottle of pure pot still whisky produced by the Nuns Island Distillery in Galway, which closed in nineteen thirteen. One hundred thousand pounds, or about one hundred forty-three thousand dollars. I own that last bottle, and it'll be buried with me, unopened. Bill's laugh was now on the raucous side, as if she'd already sampled plenty of the Macallans. Are you turning down good Irish whiskey? Nelson wanted Mai to spy on the White House. Demetra Bill's worked at the White House. This counted as part of the mission. I'd never do that. Send your car and drive a She gave Bill's the address of her old condo in Arlington. Give me a half hour to finish some work. Wonderful, Bill said and hung up. All right, that's enough reading for today. Remember, the pre-order for Terror is still ongoing. The cover reveal for Terror will be on June 4th. And the Reader Magnet Prologue to Terror is now available for your Kindle or as a tiny paperback. Remember, this coming weekend is Memorial Day, culminating on Monday with the day we honor those military personnel who gave their lives for our country. It's not a day to celebrate, but to commemorate, perhaps to remember the empty place at the picnic table or the empty side of a bed. I was lucky that my father came home from World War II. If he hadn't, I wouldn't be here. But the fact that some of his compatriots didn't come home weighed on him the rest of his life. Remember and honor them. Remember, too, that a spy will go to any lengths to recruit an asset, even on a sacred holiday so don't give the enemy an inch and keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022 from the author's clothes closet, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies Real Lives podcast as we head for our 200th episode. And on Memorial Day here, think about and honor the Ukrainian citizen-soldiers who left their jobs and schools and families to protect their country and who made the ultimate sacrifice in doing so. Slava, Ukraina.